I think most astronauts would agree that when you look at planet Earth, you have this kind of cognitive shift in terms of your perspective changing. In fact, there's even a, a term called the overview effect, which was, was coined from some Apollo astronauts coming back. Now, obviously, the Apollo astronauts saw the Earth from 400,000 kilometers away. On the space station, we're 400 kilometers. So Earth is still very big outside of our window. But you get to see the Earth in its place, in, its, in the solar system. You get to see the other planets of Mercury, Venus, Mars, Saturn and Jupiter. And it's incredible to then look at Earth and see how vibrant it looks. The, the blues, the, the greens, the oranges, the whites, the weather systems. And it's so obvious that it's a special planet that harbours life. And when you're floating away from the planet, looking down on your, your home, you get this weird sense of detachment, but it's a very serene feeling. It's a very calm feeling, and it gives you a real appreciation of what our planet is doing for us. There are a couple of special moments, every sunrise and every sunset, where we get to see the atmosphere, because you don't see the atmosphere all the time. You only see that when the sun illuminates the atmosphere at, at dawn and dusk. And we get 16 of those a day. And it's just this tiny, thin strip of gas and it's amazing to think that that atmosphere, that is the only thing that differentiates us from Mars or Venus uh, or any other inhospitable planet. And I think that's what really strikes you, how precious our planet is to support life in the solar system. You're scientists, you're professionals, but you're also human beings with emotions. Have there been moments where you or your fellow astronauts have become emotionally overwhelmed by what you're seeing in front of you? I don't think emotionally overwhelmed, certainly not from my perspective. I think that it's something that, for me anyway, it was a feeling that grew throughout the whole six months. So you have this initial sense of awe and wonder when you first look out the window, when you first see Earth from your Soyuz spacecraft on orbit one. And then it's a period of getting acquainted with the planet and getting to know it so well. Every time I looked at the planet, the view was changing. I was learning more things. And I guess my relationship with Earth was changing over that period of time. I mean, I know some astronauts come back having had a very spiritual experience. I think for me, it was a a place to sort of wonder and to think about life, the origins of life in the universe and the fact that we are all stardust. And here we are, you know, we were there, conscious, complex organisms looking down on their home planet. But ultimately, we were all created in stars and supernova explosions. But the bacon sandwich was absolutely delicious. I'm Nihal Arthanaika and this is A Brief History of Stuff. You'll hear fascinating stories about the ordinary objects around you in this podcast, all inspired by historic items from the Science Museum Group Collection. Hello, Tim. Hello, I'm Tim Peake and I'm a British astronaut working for the European Space Agency. On planet Earth, are you much of a foodie? I'm not much of a foodie, uh, and I think that probably is a good attribute for an astronaut because the, the food isn't great in space. Uh, so if you're if you're highly motivated by food, then space is perhaps not the place for you. I mean, I do enjoy a good meal, but it's not something that I have to have in my life. I can go long periods of time with very basic levels of food. What are the choices? Are you told 
beforehand exactly what it is that is, I think, menus probably stretching it, but options that you are given while you're in space? That's a, that's a good question because um, it's important to know what you're going to be faced with. And yes, we do have 10% of our menu is made up of food that we can choose. It's either extra food if there's something we really, really like, like creamed spinach, for example, which is one of the better vegetables, or if we want to have off-the-shelf food products. So anything that's got a long shelf life, that's easily packaged, lightweight, and that can be cleared by the space agency to fly to space. So 10% of our food is made up by those things that we can choose. I, for example, I took lots of little organic fruit pouches, the kind of things that you would give to three and four year olds, because it's a great way of getting fresh, you know, organic fruit inside you. And we don't have access to that on the space station. We have some tinned food. We have some dehydrated food in plastic packaging. We have some irradiated food in foil packaging, the kind of things that you would find when you go camping, really, a whole mix. So we try and get a good balance of all the nutrients and calories and minerals that we're going to require. But it doesn't tend to be that tasty because a lot of the salt is removed. Salt exacerbates our bone and muscle loss in space. So it's quite bland. Nobody goes to space for the diet. Did you have a favourite meal when you were on the space station? So far, you've sold it to me brilliantly with creamed spinach and fruit pouches. I mean, what person wouldn't want to live on that for their entire time up in space? <laughs> as far as favorite meals go there are certainly some foods are better than others without a shadow of a doubt i had a couple of food uh, products that were made for me by kids actually we had a competition and the winning teams got to cook their astronaut menu with heston blumenthal so i had some sausage and mash i had some smoked salmon i had some chicken curry i had the legendary bacon sandwich and then some kind of key lime pudding and cheesecake type pudding as well so i'm a huge fan of cheesecakes and key lime pie uh so yeah i guess my ultimate meal up there would have been chicken curry followed by key lime pie right so type 2 diabetes is not an issue then <laughs> for an astronaut Do you know <laughs> we we end we end up eating a lot of sugar the funny thing is that we struggle to maintain our weight initially i mean i lost five kilograms in the first three weeks of being in space a lot of that is because your body is getting rid of fluid because you just don't need all that fluid it floats up to your chest and face it makes you puffy face you get a headache and your brain doesn't like it so we actually lose a lot of blood volume and plasma and fluid in the first three weeks and then we're struggling to put it on because when you eat in space you feel full up very quickly food doesn't settle to the bottom of your stomach so you eat a few mouthfuls and your stomach thinks well i'm pretty full i don't really want to eat anymore so you almost have to force yourself to eat and get that calorific intake into you so when you just went through that list of the food that was prepared by heston blumenthal's team were all of those products canned? Yeah, the tinned food is often the best, actually, in space. It's the food that has the most flavour. I think that's obviously because the chefs who produce it can actually do more with tinned food and they can cook it in a, a better environment. I mean, we laugh about the bacon sandwich, but they went through 25 different types of bread before they could find a bread that would withstand the temperature and it was buttered with a nice slice of bacon between. So you've got to, you know, it's got to go through that whole canning process, which can ruin certain types of foods. So they did an awful lot of research to try and make sure that you could pop the lid 
after two years and get this lovely, warm smelling, fresh bread, you know, nice, hot, buttery bacon sandwich. In fact, the Russian food, there's a lot more tin cans with the Russian food. The US food is is moving towards those kind of irradiated foil pouches, the kind of camping food that you would just put in a little electric heater and warm up. So the lasagnas and the soups and a lot of it is kind of pasta sauce based. And in Europe, we use the tin cans as well quite a bit, actually, for for the European food. It's a real mix. I take it because of zero gravity ketchup and brown sauce are not options for your bacon sandwich oh no 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 we have ketchup and brown sauce up there absolutely it's essential because the food is so bland that we tend to be adding sauces tabasco ketchups you know to everything just to try and liven it up i think the other thing is your nose plays such a huge part in enjoying food and in space firstly we often have a blocked nose because i mentioned that puffy face all the fluid that comes to your head it kind of closes off your nasal cavities and also the air circulation on earth if you're going to eat a nice hot bacon sandwich you get the vapors rising upwards in space they don't you know they will just dissipate or stay in a bubble around the sandwich and so your nose doesn't play a huge part in the whole eating process and so i think that's why we tend to find food is bland of course you can't have food that's got too much liquid content otherwise it's just going to go everywhere and make a complete mess of the space station you don't want any dry or crumbly food like crisps and peanuts that's going to go everywhere as well and get into air filters so you have to think about what you're eating and just be a bit more considerate to the whole space station environment when you're eating in weightlessness but we try and really make the weight as light as possible. The container needs to be strong to withstand the launch, but we don't want to have much rubbish and we want to keep the weight down as much as possible. Now, listen to everything that you had to say, Tim, about food and food packaging, and I know would have been getting very excited by this, is the Curator of Consumer Technology at the Science Museum, Helen Peavitt. Hi, Helen. Hi, Nihal. Hi, Tim. Nice to speak to you both today. Hi, Helen. Hi there. How are you doing? Helen, tell us more then about the story of tin cans. Where does it begin? Quite a long time ago, there's a fair bit of science behind all this tech. It seems quite a simple technology now. But people were sort of doing science around preserving food without really understanding what they were doing. So even before tin cans, before anything else, really, people were using salt perhaps to preserve food. Or if you lived in a really cold climate, you'd bury your food in ice just to keep it cold and preserve it that way. So it's a long history of us trying just to keep foodstuffs around for longer. So we, we've got use of them outside seasonal harvest it starts changing in about the 17th century Robert Boyle who if you remember from your school days him of um, Boyle's gas laws that's the only way I know to remember him he sort of pioneered the chemistry behind food preservation he was the one who first thought it might be worth experimenting with putting foodstuffs and other things inside bottles turning it into a vacuum maybe making food containable in air-free package What happens in the early 1800s then? I mean, there's a great amount of upheaval going across Europe. There's revolution and war. Yeah, and it's a really interesting thing, isn't it? Quite often, war and revolution are the things that really bring a bit of a technological forward motion. So that happens here as well. Napoleon set up a bit of a prize. He was trying to find better ways to feed his troops. And it was won by a French man called Nicolas Appert. And he was best known for 
making sweets, actually. That's what he did down in the south of France. And he developed a method where you would heat and preserve food, but he was using glass. Far before um, we get the work of Pasteur, which is looking at bacteria, he was sort of finding a way to sterilise and preserve food without really understanding what he was doing. Napoleon's very happy. He can send his armies off with all this bottled food, but there are other ways of doing it. So we think he gets involved with an Englishman, Peter Durand, and he it's Peter Durand who brings the idea to England and he gets a patent for that sort of idea of preserving but they decide that maybe you can use other things to preserve foodstuffs in and one of the things he decides might be worth a punt is tin cans so this is where we get the first tin can in 1810. He sold the patent on to the person who really is most associated with the tin can so although the idea was there it needed someone with with a bit of money and a bit of engineering nous behind it really to make it a goer so he sold the idea to a sort of um, a trinity of people Brian Donkin another contemporary who Brian Donkin was apprenticed to called um, John Hall and another um, colleague as well so they decide this has got legs on it they think there's probably a marketing canning and they set up what turned out to be the world's first commercial canning enterprise on the south bank in Bermondsey it's now a school car park they were made by hand so when we're saying that Donkin and his company had, you know, a commercial canning factory. Yes, they did. But everyone there was operating by hand. It's not really any different to how we do it today. You make the tin can, you put your food in it, you seal it, you put it in cold water, you bring it up to the boil, and then you take the lid off very slightly because obviously you want to release all that air, and then you seal it again. And that's basically how he canned all his food. But he had quite a sophisticated method of quality control. His cans would be kept at 90 to 100 degrees for quite a while, up to a month. And he numbered all his cans so he could track them. This is a really specialist niche sort of product. The first buyers bought on mass, bought in cans, were the British Army and Navy. And a little bit later on, when you get to the 1820s, you start getting them used for some of the great expeditions. So some of the um, attempts to uncover the Northwest Passage, they start thinking that maybe tinned goods would be pretty good to take along in some of their voyages. So it's association with expeditions, whether or not it's on land, at sea or with you, Tim, up in space, goes back a fairly long way. What was the diet before canned foods came along? Oh, pretty basic. So you'd be looking at what we were saying earlier about anything salted that was easily preserved you could carry with you. Like Tim, they would have had very little access to any fresh fruit. So you'd be lucky if you got anything. You'd stop along the way, hopefully, unless you were at sea for months and pick up some supplies. But you'd also have dried biscuits, salt tack. So that was a sort of basic diet. So um, when tinned foods come along, obviously, it's a whole new universe of fabulous things to eat as long as it's canned feel or canned tongue and that sort of thing. Tim, were you aware of the military origins of the tin can? Well, fairly recently when I was reading Michael Palin's brilliant book Erebus, and you know Erebus went down to the South Atlantic and down to Antarctica and, and then up for the Northwest Passage, and hearing about how actually that, that possibly was the undoing of one of the expeditions up the, to the Northwest Passage because of, I mean, Helen will correct me, but was it the, the solder that they were using in the top of the tins? 
Yeah, there's quite a nice story there and people have been wondering about that ever since. A Franklin exhibition went off with a load of tin cans. They weren't donking tin cans. They were another engineering company who may be putting a lower bid. So they went off with hundreds and hundreds of canned meats on that expedition. It failed terribly. The ships were lost. And when rescuers turn up, they're searching in the early 1850s to try and find Franklin and find out what happened to those two ships. They find sort of cans left of empty tin cans and there's a theory that either the food was rancid and wasn't preserved properly or that actually there was a bit of leaky lead from the solder. It caused a right scandal at the time. When it came back what had happened to Franklin was put down to tin cans. There was a parliamentary inquiry into this at the time that cleared the caniacs, the guy who'd canned all this food of any um, wrongdoing but it's still a bit of an open-ended case. No one really quite knows what happened. Helen, when did tin cans take off for the general public? I and mean, we've already discussed expeditions and armies and navies. What about for consumers? They sort of took off as a sort of more mainstream product from around the 1850s. So from around the same time as we were talking about the Franklin exhibition and the loss of those ships and all the hoo-ha around whether or not that canned food was to blame. That's also the time really when canned foods start becoming more available. So you'd go down to your local store and you might be able to purchase one of the first canned goods, which was condensed milk. That's the first mainly commercial canned food, but it was for very good reasons. Milk in Victorian city wasn't always the safest thing to buy. It could be tainted with some pretty nasty ingredients. So you might find that your milk had an added ingredient of formaldehyde, otherwise known as embalming fluid and all sorts of other things. So canning milk actually made a great deal of sense. That was one of the first things which people actually embraced as a canned good. So presumably quite frustrating for someone who wants to get into their condensed milk can. They don't have a bayonet. They don't have a chisel or a hammer (laughs) to hand. So did the can over coming around pretty quickly? Yeah, unsurprisingly, Nahal, it wasn't that long after that. For your general consumer, it was obviously essential for your army and navy on the go. They'd got other methods of getting into those cans. I don't know if you watch the sitcom Friday Night Dinner, but in Friday Night Dinner, the character Martin Goodman, who is the dad, he has a can of meat, which he calls his lucky can of meat, which is 20 years old. (laughs) And he's never eaten it. Although in the particular episode, he opens it, eats it and is rushed to hospital immediately. Brilliant. (laughs) Now, I'm going to go back even further in asking you this question is, uh, are there any cans in the Science Museum Group collection that date back to the 19th century and the very first tin cans? Yeah, we've got some sadly now devoid of contents, but we did have one till quite recently, actually, fairly old, fairly old meat. The oldest we've got is from around 1812. So it's one of those Brian Donkin cans. So I'm punting here to say it's about the earliest that still exists anywhere. I'd love someone to come and prove me wrong, but I think we probably have one of the earliest in our collections. Bit of a beast. It's about a 600 gram can. That doesn't sound much, but they're fairly solidly built. You can see where they've been sealed together it's obviously pretty holy and rusty now because it's 200 years old and the sides are pretty thick so it's not like today's lovely thin aluminium cans that you can open pretty easily they were quite sturdy things there is another one that was opened um 
crikey, I think in the 1950s. So it had been sealed for about 100 years and they opened it and it was unsurprisingly not fit to eat, but not as bad as you'd think. There was a bit of tainting going on. I don't think anyone volunteered to eat it, but they were fairly surprised it lasted quite well considering. I know Tim was talking about the awful, terrible failure of the Franklin Exhibition. This one was also doing a similar journey. 1825, this was another expedition to look for the Northwest Passage. This was by William Parry. The one we have was left there, but it came back with content still intact. They didn't really know what they brought back because apparently someone who was on the voyage then used it as a doorstep. So it had been propping up his office for the next hundred years or so before we get hold of it and they decide to hack into it. Helen, here's a question that I think my mum would like to know the answer to, even though she would ignore it once you give the answer. How long will a tin of food last? Ooh, good question. What answer would your mum like? She would like your answer plus 10 years. Oh, crikey, that's fine. I can give her that. That's no problem. The slightly stricter answer, the one that I should tell you, is that it depends on what you put in it. Obviously, you've got use-by dates. They're on a can. It's really acidic food, so tomato sauces, things like that. Then the can isn't going to last as long. So you might be looking at as a couple of years, maybe, something like that. But realistically, things don't go off that fast, so you're going to be able to use it degree longer than that. I don't know if I dare admit to your mum the oldest can I've opened, but I have opened one that was about eight years old and it was perfectly fine, a can of tin peaches, no problem at all with it, but I suppose we shouldn't be advocating that to the the public on a podcast. But anyway, you can tell your mum that as long as it's peaches, it's fine. If it's tomato sauce, best not. So with citrus fruit, etc, tomatoes, what is the recommended time for something that's acidic compared to something like peas and soup etc yeah less time anything which is vegetably and a bit more neutral so some of that fruit is neutral ph you're looking at maybe two to five years for those acidy things maybe 12 18 months would be the sort of recommended time scale to keep those for and i feel like we can't have a conversation about tin cans without talking about baked beans when did they first find themselves encased in tin yeah baked beans they're again another mundane everyday consumable isn't it but actually that started off high-end as well so if you wanted to go and buy baked beans in the 1860s 70s you'd have to go down to Fortnum and Mason to purchase those for a number of reasons Tim baked beans are not part of the food package in space (laughs) <laughs> you'd be surprised we we do have baked beans <laughs> yeah somebody had a sense of humor when they sent those up but they're not canned they're uh, one of the food products that come in these foil pouches that are irradiated and so we just heat them up and <laughs> go for it and then make sure that you're working by yourself for the rest of the day <laughs> yes yeah i mean you do have to think about those things but you've already mentioned cream spinach and i thought that might have some some effects as well i mean that has to be taken into account you are in enclosed spaces you know you have to make sure that the food is not shall we say anti-social don't you yeah you want to make sure it agrees with you for a number of different reasons you know you don't want any food that's going to aggravate you give you an upset stomach it just will make life very unpleasant on the space station but we have some amazing systems that are regenerating our atmosphere scrubbing all of the nasty smells out of the atmosphere they're 
removing excess of carbon dioxide, replenishing us with oxygen. You know, we're trying to recycle absolutely everything, all the urine that we expel, the sweat when we're exercising. It all goes back into drinking water within about 48 hours. Were there any things that you vowed never to eat again back on Earth? <laughs> That's a great question. I'm trying to think rapidly now through the ISS menu and think if there's anything I really wouldn't touch. You know, when you're desperate enough, you'll eat anything. And I think actually compared to some of the stuff that I had to eat in the army, army rations, there were these things called biscuits AB or biscuits brown. And, you know, Helen was talking about the, that old naval diet of, of hardtack biscuits. Believe me, they haven't changed much since the early 1800s. Um, so yeah. com- compared to those biscuits, I think space station food is pretty good. You also have to be focused on lots of very important experiments that you're doing. Therefore, is there an element of the thought process about eating can't be too long or too in-depth? It's a good point. When you're busy during the daytime, you know, your lunch is often grabbed on the go. If you're overrunning, your mealtime is always the thing that will start disappearing because everything else has to get done. So you start just having something very quick, easy to heat up, easy to eat quickly. Now, I what's really important as well is, although we're not food motivated in space, your food has been a really important part of our socializing as humans it's when people come together it's it's when we enjoy food together we tell the stories and you know sitting around a fire and as our ancient ancestors would have done and we like to do that as well you know on the space station the evening meals were important to come together talk about the day debrief any points uh, but it was that whole social interaction tell us then helen what the impact of tin cans has been. I mean, is this kind of revolution for how we ate over a well, century and a half ago? Yeah, I suppose it is really, apart from the obvious impact of lots of people eating baked beans, there are, there's a more serious side to what it's done. It allows you to fundamentally change how you eat, what you eat and when you eat it before we really got into refrigerated food and frozen food. Cans are the way of getting seasonal produce brought in from all over the world. That's how it happened for the first time. It allows you to eat totally unseasonable goods. Helen, to paraphrase, video killed the radio star. Did fridges kill the tin star? <laughs> yeah, they did. I like what Tim was saying about the campfire analogy, you know, sitting around in that sort of sociable element to it. And I suppose fridges, much as they've got a really good positive side for our diet and what they've done in terms of increasing the foods we can eat. There's a downside. Fridges have killed off the can to a certain extent. So when you get to the 1960s, 70s, when we start getting fridges in the home, the humble tin can goes down in status somewhat. So whilst it was seen as quite a high-end good to have before then, the minute you get fridges in the home, people want to move on to fresh produce and they want to fill their fridges with the latest um, convenience food or a bit later, the latest microwave meal. And then you're not sitting around your campfire or around your dining table. You're moving your food from fridge to microwave and to your lap in front of the TV. There's still a perception that the nutritional value of tin goods is a lot worse than fresh goods. Is this necessarily the case, Helen? And this is really for Tim as well, because he was, you know, his subsistence was on tinned foods for quite a while. Oh, Tim, do you want to go first? How did you find the nutrition of your space food? 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing your answer, Helen, but it wasn't all tinned food. It was a mix, but none of it was fresh. And we were certainly getting the right number of nutrients that we needed, the calories, the minerals, the vitamins. Yeah, I've got to agree. I think that's part of that advertising campaign for the fridge and against the canned food. I think it's a bit of a myth. Most canned foods actually preserve those nutrients and the food really, really well. Tim, how often are the food supplies replenished then? Because it's not as if you've got, you know, Deliveroo or Uber Eats up there. So we like to keep at least six months worth of food on the space station, if not more. But we're getting cargo vehicles now every two months, really, two to three months to the space station, mixed between cargo vehicles and crew changeovers. And the frequency of deliveries to the space station is increasing. We've got commercial vehicles doing that now. SpaceX have been flying cargo vehicles for a while. And now, um, as well as SpaceX delivering crew, we've got Boeing delivering crew next year. So these commercial companies that are starting to fly more give us more opportunity for resupplying the space station. So there's plenty of opportunity and having a diversity of different vehicles is really good so that if there is a problem with one type of vehicle or rocket, then at least you've got another means of getting supplies to the space station. The the interesting thing is you'll open up a bag of food that lasts for about seven days and we have to make sure that everything's eaten because you can't open another bag ahead of time. Otherwise, you're going to eat through the next expedition's food rations. So you have to be conscientious. And so the first two or three days after opening the bag of food, everybody's all smiley and happy because all the good stuff's there and there's plenty of it. It's day kind of four, five and six that you're really scraping the bottom of the barrel. And it's all the things that people don't like that are just left to the very end. Do you know, that sounds like family life to me when you do a weekly shop and all the goodies go first and then you get those left at the end, the dregs of the food cabinet. How quickly did the bacon sandwiches go then? The bacon sandwiches were rationed for me. I couldn't really control it anyway because they were coming up on separate cargo vehicles. So even if I ate all of my ration quickly, then, you know, a few weeks later, another cargo vehicle would come up and there you go. There's another 20 bacon sandwiches. But it was nice to be able to share them out amongst crew members. And, And every Friday night, we would all gather down the Russian segment of the space station and everybody would bring some nice food. Uh, often it was, you know, something that was kind of special to them or their country of origin. And they were the great evenings where we would just, you know, enjoy each other's food. Helen, you have actually have, don't you, some of the tin cans developed for Tim's food in the Science Museum collection? Yeah, we do. Although I have to say, I don't know if we've still got the contents or not. I'm hoping we do. But yeah, we've got some sausage sizzle, which I'm guessing was the sausage and mash kiddies dish. Some of that infamous chicken curry and the bacon sarni. I would love to know, Tim, how they made that a crumb-free sandwich. I'm assuming there's a lot lot going on in there to make sure that when you bite into it, you're not sort of showering fellow astronauts with sandwich crumbs. Yeah, I, I think the team weren't too worried about the odd crumb. In fact, they, they, they weren't too worried about the salt content either. I found out after a few weeks of being in space that, that perhaps some of the food I was eating had a bit more salt in it than it should have done. But no, so the odd, the odd crumb is not a problem. Well, I think crumbs are the least of your problems when you've got odd bits of napalm-like Tabasco sauce floating through the air. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we do try and keep the mess down to a minimum as well. But everybody knows when you're, you know, when you first go on board the space station, you don't need to be told that it's the galley. 
because you just look at all the walls and you can see the splatterings of 20 years worth of meals. It's like, okay, yeah, this is the galley. Hang on, no one cleans the galley wall. Is that what we're saying? It's left. Well, it, they're fabric. It, it's um, it's always they're all fabric stowage containers and fabric coverings. So I think every couple of years they'll fly up some fresh panels, just so it looks a bit smarter. But no, <laughs> um, we haven't got easy to wipe down panels. Okay, at that point, you're probably quite happy that your nose is blocked up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> That's. Crikey, it's just as well that the smell is reduced. There's less aroma. My goodness. What then, going forward, as there are longer missions, as we plan to go back to the moon and then on to Mars, that will prove to be incredibly difficult logistically, won't it, Tim, when it comes to food? Yes, the moon is not so logistically challenging. It's a three to four day journey away. And we don't want to be sending spacecraft there, you know, as, as frequently, of course, as we do to the space station. But it, it's possible to to have a resupply. Mars is a completely different kettle of fish altogether. Where the moon is 400,000 kilometers away, Mars can be, you know, 400 million kilometers away, depending on where Mars and Earth are at any one period. And when you launch to Mars, you you have a two year window. So when we send a crew off to Mars, we probably won't see them for three years if they're going to have a meaningful stay on the surface, which means they need to be self-sufficient. You know, we need to have enough food with them to last that period of time. But we also want them to have the capability to grow their own food. So we have a greenhouse on the space station. We're researching how plants, how flowers, edible flowers grow. It's a bit like, you know, a hydroponicum in terms of working out how plants can get all the nutrients they need in a really incredibly hostile environment and a difficult environment for growth. But the fascinating thing is, if we can grow plants in space, we can grow plants in the Sahara Desert. You know, it's all for the benefit of people on Earth. And food production, as our planet grows towards 11 billion, as it is forecast to do, food production is going to be hugely important here on Earth. And so the more we can learn about how to how to produce food in hostile environments, the better. Tim, how do you feel now about the tin can having heard Helen dive into the history of the tin can? I think it's amazing. These things, these inventions, these processes that we've developed as humans can change how we are able to do things. They enable us to go further, to explore, because we obviously have to survive in these environments. The humble tin can enabled us to go off and, and explore for further and farther afield. It's fascinating to hear the history. I, I love it. And I, I think the tin can is has got an exciting future as well. Thank you so much, Tim for telling us all about, in sometimes, shall we say, graphic detail, how food and humans interact <laughs> on the space station. It's been revelatory. Thank you, Nihal. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. So, Helen, Tim has learned a lot from you. What have you learned from Tim Peake? I've learnt a bit about what I hoped to hear is that there's a future for tin cans in space. I think there's a real part to play in how we produce our food in future. There's a real simplicity about canning it. There's, it's a really good way of producing food. 
in a more sustainable fashion. You've got a tin can, it's preserved, and you can take seasonal foods and do it that way. So I love the idea that there's a future for tin cans here on the Earth. And I love the idea that our astronauts are going to be going up in their sealed spacecraft and taking sealed tin cans with them, hopefully, to Mars. And thank you so much, Helen. I've really enjoyed learning all about the tin can tonight. That's been fascinating. Yeah, you're welcome. It's a lot of fun. A Brief History of Stuff is a Story Things and Science Museum group production. Each episode features a story inspired by incredible items from the Science Museum group collection. The collection contains more than 7 million items which illustrate the impact of science, technology, engineering and medicine on all our lives. If you'd like to discover more stories about the everyday objects around you, including more about the history of tin cans, then visit sciencemuseum.org.uk and search for Everyday Technology. Thanks to our guest, European Space Agency astronaut Tim Peake, and to curator Helen Pevitt from the Science Museum for taking part in this episode. The series producer is Will Stanley and executive producer is Hugh Gary. The script editor is Ian Stedman. Audio editor is Kenya Scarlett. And research for this episode was, of course, by Helen Pevitt. We would like to thank everyone at the Science Museum group who made this podcast possible. If you'd like to support this podcast and our museums, then please do check out the Science Museum's online shop. You can claim an exclusive 10% discount on science-inspired gifts using the code SMGCAST10. But you won't, sadly, be able to buy any cans of veal from the 1850s. If you like a brief history of stuff, we would be over the moon if you tell your friends and rate us wherever you listen to your podcast to help others discover these fascinating stories. Thank you for listening, and I hope we've inspired you to wonder a little bit more about the remarkable stuff around you.